Well, if you have children or grandchildren who like to draw, you may notice that as they develop, they, they tend to change their perspective in how they draw. So if you were to ask, I don't know, a two or three-year-old to draw a picture of a house on a hill, this is what the house would look like, all right? You ever thought of what it'd be like to live in a house like that? You know, cook, pass food around the table. You need Velcro socks to walk around in a house like that. Now, as they get older, their perspective shifts, and they draw the house in a proper perspective in regard to the hill. And that's just an element of their development in understanding reality. And there was a psychologist by the name of Piaget who actually studied children's artwork, and he was able to identify where they were in the developmental pathway just by looking at things like this in their development, uh, mentally and so on. Now, the reason I bring this up is that there is an equivalent experience that takes place in the Christian life that we all have perspectives that we bring to the Christian life that are out of whack with reality. So, for example, in the area of the existence of the spiritual realm and how it relates to the realm of the physical world, there are people that would fit at one end of a spectrum and another end of the spectrum. At this end, there, there might be people that we would call animists, Animists are people who believe that spirits are in everything and everywhere. They're in trees, they're in flowers, they're in animals, they're in the ground, they're in fire, they are in rain, and so forth. Uh, We have a couple, young family, we uh, commissioned to serve over in Papua New Guinea, Aaron and Delana Spence. They are over there to translate the Bible into a local tribal language. And part of their training as they've gone there has been to go and live in a village just so that they get used to living in village life. Well, while they were there, over I think a three or four week period, Delana developed some sort of intestinal bug and the people in that culture believe that all sickness has a spiritual cause. It's caused by the spirits somehow. And therefore you try to appease the spirits or address the spirits in order to fix the physical problem. Now, you could take someone from that village, you could bring in a microscope, get a drop of water out of the river that they drink from, put it on a slide, and show them literally microbes in the water that they drink that cause waterborne illnesses, and they still wouldn't believe it because it doesn't fit with their perspective. There are people at the other end of this spiritual realm perspective. We would call them materialists. They say all that exists is what you can see. It's the things that you can sense physically. That's all there is. So if you were to present to someone at this end of the spectrum historical evidence, you could put the microscope of history out there for them and you could show them all the reasons why someone actually rose from the dead after three days, even though that doesn't work in the physical world, they would say, I can't believe it. You see, they have the same problem that the animist has because their perspective doesn't align or allow for an encounter with reality. So as we think about this perspective issue, we have perspectives in all sorts of areas. And many of our perspectives are out of alignment with reality and growth in the Christian life 
is a process of moving from these perspectives that we bring with us to the ones that align with the reality that God has revealed for us. Now, we're going to look today at an incident that involves a couple of different groups of people who obviously carry the wrong perspective about Jesus with them. We're going to see that these are two groups that you would expect have the inside track for understanding who Jesus is. And yet, the fact that they get it wrong should, in a sense, warn us. I mean, you think of all the people that are living in St. Louis right now. Who are the people that you would think would have the inside track for having the right connection with Jesus? Isn't it people who are sitting in churches who are studying the Bible this morning? Well, we're going to see that being familiar with Jesus and even spiritual activity like this is no guarantee that we're going to have the right perspective. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're in this series, seeing the new things that God brings. And we need a new perspective. So we're Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull one out, page 709. If you want to get your uh, app out on your phone, you can look under uh, First Free, and you're going to see under the events the passage that we're going to read. Now, the first group that you would think would have the inside track that Mark describes here, it's his biological family. So follow along as I read verses 20 and 21 from Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now let me point out, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't cover over things. It doesn't try and make them prettier than they actually were. You know, I looked at this particular incident, and I thought, you know, if I were in Mark's position, and I was trying to write a book that was designed to get you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm not sure I would have included this incident, because it seems like he hadn't even convinced his own family. They are looking at Jesus, and they're saying he's lost it. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Now, at one level, you can see how they might arrive at this conclusion. I mean, for 30 years, he's lived at home. He's been the faithful son and brother that you would always have expected him to be from what you saw from an early age. He's lived it out. But now he's left home, he's become a rabbi, but even though that's a source of pride for an observant Jewish family, he hasn't followed the traditional rabbi track. And it seems like he's kind of abandoned his firstborn responsibilities according to the culture. I mean, he's way off from the traditional rabbi track. He's created all this controversy with the religious leaders who are in that region. They're trying to find ways to bring him down, to undermine him. And so that's a source of embarrassment and now they get word that he's not even taking care of himself he's not even eating him it's like this popularity is going to his head and even worse he's taking these other followers with him down the same track so they figure they got to go do something about it i mean if anyone's going to do something about it when when we look like we're out of alignment it's going to be the people who love us the most isn't it it's going to be the family So at this point, Mark does something that 
he does in a couple of different places in his record of Jesus' life. He takes one incident and he inserts another one right in the middle. It's a related concept. These incidents, when he does that, they comment on each other. They reinforce one another. And that's what he does. Now, we're not going to go on to that quite yet because I want to talk a little bit about this phrase, out of his mind. He's out of his mind. The basic idea behind that is something that's shocking. And almost every place that you find this phrase... You know, we, we could use the English equivalent being beside yourself. You know, you can be beside yourself on a positive side with joy, or you can be beside yourself with worry, with anxiety. Almost every time this comes up, it's positive. You're amazed. There's this sense of wonder of what's going on. There's only two places in the entire New Testament where this word has this kind of negative connotation to it here and in one of Paul's letters that he wrote to a church that he had helped start in the city of Corinth. Let me read for you what Paul says about himself there. He's including himself and his missionary partners. He says, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So again, the basic idea is surprise. There's this surprise that something out of the ordinary, and Paul and his fellow missionaries the, the church, they're shocked at how they're behaving. Why? Because they aren't living for themselves. They're living for God. They're living for others. They're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jesus seems out of step with what these people are expecting. They've got this one perspective on who Jesus is, and he turns out to be something different. And they can't process this very well. So when they look at Jesus, they see that he has abandoned himself to making this good news of the kingdom of God available to anyone and at any cost. And so if that means I've got to skip a few meals, he says, no big deal. If that means he's got to be out of sync with the other religious leaders who have encrusted the truth of God with their own traditions that actually are burdensome to other people, he says, so be it. If it means he's got to step out of the cultural expectations for his role as the firstborn son in the family, he says, that's the way it's got to be. So when Jesus lives this way, you can see how his family responds. They want to come in and take control of him rather than understand him. Rather than being corrected to the proper perspective, they want Jesus to take on their perspective. And that happens to us too. I mean, sometimes we'll find ourselves on this side of the equation. We're becoming faithful followers of Jesus. We're growing in our understanding of the realities that God has placed in this world and in our lives, the priorities that he has, the values that he has, the relationships that he wants us to develop. And what we're doing looks crazy to other people. They may say to you and me, what are you thinking? Why are you doing that? I mean, in terms of everyday life, it may be in your career. I mean, the normal career path, it's like, like this. This is what everybody wants. Right? Higher authority, higher power higher income, and along comes this golden opportunity for you in your career, and as you pray about it, it's as though the Lord says, you know, for you to 
go do that. You're going to have to leave behind some other priorities and responsibilities that I have for you right now. And you say no. And people say, what? What are you thinking? Have you gone nuts? See how that works? I mean, it, it could be that you have achieved a certain level of income and you have decided to have a standard of living that's below that in order that you can invest the extra in the work of God's kingdom. And there are going to be a lot of people in your life who are not going to get that. Your realtor, if they're not a believer, will not get that. They'll say, you can afford a house like this. And you say, no, I want to afford a house like this. They won't get it. Your tax advisor may say, you know what, you're risking an audit, giving like that. It's like, okay, if we've got all the documentation, who cares? Your investment advisor may look at you and say, you're missing some opportunities here for the secure retirement that I think you ought to have. And you're saying, God will take care of it. Do you see why people will say to us, like Jesus' family said to him, you're nuts. And it may be that there's people in your neighborhood or people in your class that others just don't associate with and God moves in your heart with a kind of compassion that you've never had for them and you start to hang out with them and people say to you, do you realize what you're doing? Why are you doing that? Or maybe there's someone who's hurt you and other people that you know and because God has forgiven you, there's a posture of forgiveness that you take on toward them. And other people look at you and they feel like you're betraying them by being forgiving toward that person. So the more we grow, the more we take on the posture and this perspective of Jesus, the more people are going to say the same thing about us. And I think that's why Jesus says to us as followers, you have to love me more than anyone else. More than your mom and dad, more than your brothers and sisters, more than your friends, more than your jobs, more than your you know, lands and families and all that kind of stuff. And guess who models it? Jesus does. He went down that road before any of us did. Before he invited any of us to follow, he went down that road. So you can see how important this whole question of perspective is and why there's a need for us to shift because our tendency, mine too, we want to control Jesus. We want him to conform to us rather than us to conform to him. We want to correct him rather than have him correct us. It's just a spiritual issue that all of us have, even Mary. And I think that's part of the learning process for us. Mary's a woman of faith. Mary had experienced these incredible miracles of God. She had confirmations right and left. But even she had perspectives that needed to be changed. We do too. Now right in the middle of this incident, Mark inserts another one. It's very similar in kind but it's even more drastic. So take a look with me at what follows in this passage. We'll pick up here and read about a second group that should have had an inside track. It was the religious leaders. And this is what he says. This is what happened, verse 22. The teachers of the law 
who came down from Jerusalem. Now, this is the big guns coming. They said he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. It's like, wow. I mean, they can't deny the power of Jesus in the spiritual realm. Mark has recorded multiple occasions where he has cast demons out of demon-possessed people. He's even given authority to his followers to go and do this. And so they have to come up with an explanation that fits with the perspective that they have. And the only explanation they can come that's consistent with their perspective is that somehow the devil is at work through Jesus in order to cast out lower-ranking demons. It's the same problem that the animists have. We talked about them. You can show them the microbes in the water that cause the problems. doesn't matter. It must be the spirits. It's the same problem the materialists have. You show them all the evidence, historically and otherwise, why the resurrection happened. They just cannot fit it into their viewpoint. It's a problem that we have as human beings. And we're seeing it put on display here. Now, I think even this particular issue, talking about the spiritual realm, I mean, it doesn't mean we can't ask questions. We shouldn't have, we should work things through. But it's our posture that we take on. You see, his family comes to control him. These religious leaders, they come to accuse him, to oppose him. It's a different perspective we're going to see than what we come to at the end of this passage for his followers. But just take this area of the whole spiritual realm, whether or not there's spiritual warfare or not. In the American mindset, that just does not compute for us. Why is that? Where does the average American get their view on the spiritual realm and the, the work that Satan or demons might do? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from Hollywood, doesn't it? What other exposure does the average American get than what you see on TV or in the movies or something like that? What is Hollywood's track record for getting reality, spiritual reality, correct? And yet we want to question the Bible, we want to question Jesus based on what Hollywood has taught us? Really? So what does it look like? I mean, according to Hollywood, it's just kind of these extreme expressions. So at least there's room. I've got to give them credit. There is room for the spiritual realm. There is room for the activity of demons. You've got to give them credit for getting that part right. But it's only these extreme, rare examples. It's a part of everyday life. And how do I know that? Well, think of the prayer Jesus taught his disciples. Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's just like daily stuff. Just like temptation. Or you take a look at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And he begins by uh, this section by talking about the importance of knowing the will of God and walking in his ways. And he says that's all tied into being filled with the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to direct you, to control you, to empower you. And then he starts listing all the areas that are tied into that. He talks about husbands and wives and how you relate to each other. He talks about parents and children and how you relate to each other. He talks about slaves and masters, how the workforce operates. So it's marriage, marriage, family, work, 
all tied into the work of the Holy Spirit. And guess what follows that section? One of the central teaching passages in spiritual warfare. Because it's all a part of everyday life. Let me give you some examples. Uh, as parents, new parents, Carol and I prayed for our children from when we found out that they were conceived, asking God that he would give them a tender heart to follow Christ. And so when our older child, Lauren, was about almost four, she was still three years old, she started asking these great questions about what it means to follow and believe in Jesus. I mean, for a three-year-old. I mean, it's not like theology 500. It's theology 101, but not bad for a three-year-old. And so, you know, we were praying for this, and she starts asking about it. So what do we do as Christian parents? We put her off. Why? Well, we thought she's only three. She's not even four. What did Jesus say? He said, let the little children come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So she persisted. I mean, part of the reason for holding off is we just wanted to make sure it wasn't because of something she'd heard from us or a video that we'd put on or, a, you know, in Sunday school. We just wanted to see if it persisted, and it did. It persisted to the point that she almost got frustrated with us. So I can remember, we were on vacation up in Michigan, we went to the hotel that night and we helped her cross the line of faith and then something really neat happened. We noticed that as she was just kind of running around at home and playing and doing stuff, she was singing. She was singing songs about Jesus. She was singing songs about faith. And the Bible says that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. There is singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so it's like, wow, God's already at work in our life. Well, I don't remember how long after that, but she came up to Carol with as serious as an expression as a four-year-old can convey and just saying, Mommy, I'm having bad thoughts. So Carol thought, well, you know, just go do this puzzle or read that book or do this activity. Just kind of distract her. And it persisted. Mommy, I'm having bad thoughts. And Carol and I kind of look at each other like, what kind of bad thoughts can a four-year-old have? It's like, really? But you could see it on her face. She was troubled by this. And so Carol and I began to wonder, could this be a, a form of spiritual oppression? A way of discouraging this brand new child of God. And so the two of us kind of got off by ourselves and we prayed that God would protect her. And within five minutes, she was singing again and never brought it up. How do you explain that? Especially if you have a perspective that has a very limited or no allowance for that kind of activity in the world. I know in my own life, as a young pastor, I had had a difficult meeting one night I went home, had a hard time sleeping. It's just kind of like I was playing it over and over in my mind. I was thinking about what was said and what I did say and what I should have said. You ever had those moments, you know? And 
next morning I got up, it was still stuck in my mind. And it's almost like it had taken on a life of its own. It became oppressive. And I remember driving up the road from our house to the office and praying this prayer, Lord, if this is not from you, if this is from some sort of spiritual influence that's going on here, will you please remove it? And bam, immediately, it was gone. How do you explain that? It's happened again and again and again in my life. Because the spiritual battles begin right here. We're going to see that as we finish out this message. See, when someone has a framework that doesn't allow for that, we can't see it. Especially if we resist being taught. And we would rather question it or reject it than be corrected. It's just our human nature. It's our tendency as human beings. So this is what Jesus does with these spiritual leaders who are accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Look at what he says. Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. I mean, it was a self-defeating argument that they'd come up with. In fact, he takes it to the next level. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up that strong man, then he can rob his house. Well, the point of that parable is pretty clear, isn't it? The strong man is Satan. Jesus has come along. He's taking his possessions, these people. That's why Jesus came. Guess who's stronger than the strong man? Jesus is. And they cannot see it. It's a little scary, isn't it? Well, the rest of the passage shows us what's at stake in our perceptions. And it begins with these religious leaders and it ends with Jesus' family. So let's take a look at what happens with these skewed perspectives. Verses 28 to 30. These are hard verses to read. I tell you the truth. And that's Jesus' way of saying, listen up. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And Mark explains, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Our perceptions, when we persist in them, can lead us to damnation. It's possible that our minds can be so darkened and so hardened that what we actually see in Jesus we attribute not to the Holy Spirit, but to Satan. That's what was going on. Now, none of us knows when someone crosses that line. I mean, I look at someone like Paul, who at one point in his life had been a persecutor of the church. He'd he'd watched people die because they wouldn't renounce their faith in Christ. And he cheered it on. So we don't know exactly when someone crosses that line. God is very... He's very gracious. 
But you can see the power of our perspective and what it can lead to. It can lead to our damnation. It can also lead to our exclusion. That's what he says to his own family. Let's read the rest of this chapter, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, so their physical position really reflects their spiritual position here. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he, they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now we know that members of Jesus' family didn't remain stuck in that wrong perspective. We know that Mary was there at the cross. She was there in the upper room when the church was first formed as one of those early disciples. We know that two of his brothers, James and Jude, eventually came to faith. Their perspective was shifted. We know that. We've got letters from them to the church. But you can see how great the need is that we have because we all bring areas of life that are out of whack with Jesus and we think he's out of whack. There are things in here that are hard for us. They're hard for us to hear the demands that Jesus makes, the statements that he uh, calls for commitment in, for example. There are places in here that address issues that are very close to us and important to us, and when they disagree with us, what's our tendency? Isn't it to want to correct what God says so it agrees with us? Isn't it want to lessen the level of commitment or dedication? Isn't it the circumstances he allowed? Don't, don't we push back against him? Don't we ask, are you nuts? Well, it's okay to ask the questions, but what's our ultimate posture that we take? Because the posture of a disciple, the posture of one in his family is sitting at his feet and learning from him. The posture is one that leads to learning, that leads to change. So I don't know where you are in this process, but let me show you a couple of passages that I think are, in a sense, channel markers for us in what it looks like to move from the wrong perspective to the right perspective, God's perspective, from our reality to true reality. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Because John noticed the same thing that Mark notices that the people that you would think would know the best don't get it. In this case, it was the Jewish people. There were many of them that didn't get it. So John comments on that in verse 11. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. But notice what happens to those who do. Yet to all who received him, and what he means by that is to those who believed in his name, there's genuine faith here, he gave the right to become children of God, to become new people. Children who are born, not of natural descent, this isn't an earthly kind of experience, it's supernatural, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but they are born of God. 
That's where this process begins. It begins with this faith that leads to a new birth. And that's the beginning of the shift. That isn't the end of the shift because there are things in us that need to be changed, need to be addressed, need to be corrected. And that's what our process of growth is all about. And I want to point you to another passage that explains what that looks like. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. It's on page 803. And after explaining this gift of new life that's available to us, this is what Paul says we should do to respond. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that he's done to make it possible for us to have this new birth, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's a faith that leads to obedience. That's what Jesus said his family is. It's people who do the will of God. Not out of their own strength. Not of their own ability. It's out of this new life that God has given us. And so he says the right response to that is to say, Lord, here I am. I'm here to serve you. I give myself to you to do whatever it is you want me to do. Tell me. I want to do your will. And he says that's a beautiful expression of worship to God. Now, you may hear that and say, but Bill, I still struggle. I mean, there's still these things in here that I'm having a hard time accepting. Well, it's a process. There are things in here that I still struggle with, but it's our posture. Do we come and say, Lord, will you teach me? I'm pushing back here. I realize it. I'm resisting you. I'm wanting to control you. I'm wanting to correct you. And that's not the position I should be in as your follower. I want you to control me and correct me. How does that happen? Well, that's what verse 2 tells us. It says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the pattern of the world on the right. But be transformed, and we can't do it ourselves. It's a work of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Sit at the feet of Jesus and let him teach you. Bring those hard things back to him. Those difficult commitments and circumstances, the things that you are wondering, are you crazy, Lord? Why would you do that? Why would you say that? Why would you ask me to do that? Ask him. And he will begin to transform our perspective. It's the transforming of our minds and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I don't know where you are in that journey. Maybe you haven't experienced that new birth yet. That's where it starts. And it begins with entrusting yourself to Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> this is a lifelong journey. And it seems like the Lord, once we learn in one area, he goes on to another because he wants to transform us from one degree of glory into the next, into his image. So let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us. Father, sometimes we don't see these areas ourselves. It takes the work of your spirit. And as we uh, had been singing earlier in the service when your spirit moves 
It changes what we see and what we seek. And so we invite your spirit to do that work in us now. Lord, there may be people here who have never experienced the new birth. And today is their day. And you've been speaking to them that familiarity with you is not enough. Spiritual activity is not enough. It's a new birth that comes from God. And if that describes you, you can just tell the Lord right now, Lord, I'm ready. I want that. I want to believe in Jesus. Help me. Give me new birth, I pray. Amen.